Hey, it's Arrow. PodFest brings together three different conversations from musicians to authors, doctors, environmentalists, and cooks in their own kitchen. These are real people with real stories. PodFest 41 features U.S. Navy SEAL Clint Emerson, author of the book 100 Deadly Skills. Then, a very up-close conversation with one of the biggest voices from the 1980s, Mr. Colin Hay from Men at Work. Then we'll wrap things up with my 2016 conversation with comedian Eric Griffin. Now, what makes this conversation pretty funny? And very rare is that I was using my radio voice on a podcast. I was just making that transition and thought, oh, radio voice, radio guy. Yeah, my God, it was so bad. Podfest 41. We are unplugged and totally uncut with U.S. Navy SEAL Clint Emerson. First and foremost, I want to thank you for your dedication and loyalty to America, sir. Not a problem. That's easy. <laughs> you know, in this day and age, is it easy? Oh, uh, well, I guess, uh, I guess it really depends on where you're at and what you're doing and what's, uh, what's lurking around the corner. Lurking around the corner is what your book is about. It's 100 Deadly Skills. You have created a masterpiece of trying to keep peace of mind. Yes, trying to get people to acquire the knowledge, increase awareness, so that when, you know, bad luck comes their way, they've increased their uh, their survivability. How numb have we become as a nation? And the reason why I bring that up is because I, I, my wife and I now are getting into these conversations where we say, we're going into a group of people. If we don't make it to the other side, you, you know that it will meet somewhere else again. That's not normal conversation, sir. No, no, it's not. But it is very vigilant, and at least you're aware of it, and that's kind of the first step. After that, it's, you know, being more preemptive and proactive with your actions so that you don't find yourself in a, in a bad situation just because of a wrong left turn. One of the, one of the things that, that I'm noticing a lot is, sure, security is higher in buildings, but I can't even walk into a building with something as simple as a Kubaton in my pocket because you don't know what's going to happen inside. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, you're right. It's especially when you're talking about like these conventions going on. The nice thing about buildings and convention centers is that at least there's perimeter, there's walls, there's there's guards that are, uh, you know, you know, checking everything. So you hope that everyone is being vetted um, properly, so that you're not giving up your survival tools but someone else is getting in with a gun so there's a there's obviously a give and take there one of the things that that you talk about inside your book is that you should stay away from the center of where people have gathered why is the center point the the most dangerous side uh it decreases your visibility to the, the entire 360 degrees around you um, it doesn't allow you to hastily get uh, away from everything. Um, and usually if you find yourself in the middle, you'll by, just by the nature of mobs and crowds, you'll slowly get pushed towards whatever it is they are moving towards, which is the line of conflict. And if that line of conflict is either barricades or law enforcement, it's all the things you don't want to be near. So it's almost hitting an ocean wave then. I mean, you, you, you lose control. You do to a certain degree. And, um, and, if, uh, and if it's an emotionally charged crowd and it becomes violent, now you really uh, put yourself in a bad place. 
your book is about awareness and it also teaches people and it's such a great tool it's it's almost like a book of reference more than it's just a something where people can just sit there and say all right i'm prepared now but you can actually activate what you're talking about inside this book exactly and uh, you hit it on the head the idea is is have the have what you're going to do already figured out before you're in it. And that way, all you have to do is act it out. Activate those decisions that you made while stress was low and you had plenty of time. The one thing you don't want to do is make decisions in crisis when you have stress and decreased time. One of the things that I see, I'm a second degree black belt, and one of the things that I that I'm in watching people and being aware of people is that I see a lot of hand holding taking place. As as a Navy SEAL, doesn't hand holding if something major were to happen, the woman or the guy would grab the hand and you can't escape when in reality you should be able to run in separate directions? Yes, I, I mean the, the goal is to yeah to run for sure, increasing distance from the threat will increase survivability without a doubt. And then knowing that, all right, if I'm not, you're not going to ever be able to outrun you know fragmentation of bullets. So you you need to be running towards something that stops bullets and stops fragmentation. And then constantly keeping your eyes on the bad guys, not trying to lose sight of them. Because uh, where there's one, there may be another. And the last thing you want to do is run right into the second one that you didn't identify the first time. And, and, and the dangers are not just guns anymore. I mean, just this morning in France, it's knives. Knives are becoming so... Uh, and is it because they're getting it past security? It's uh, They're a lot more concealable and they're easier to obtain. I mean, let's face it, you can go to any uh, supermarché or market around the globe and buy a set of kitchen knives. So I love it when people want to blame the guns, but, you know, these bad guys are now proving whether it's in Japan or in France, you know, stabbing is just as effective. I mean, J- Japan last night or yesterday, you had, what, 19 yes. people stabbed to death. Um, that, that's, that's the type of kill number that you typically get with a gun, not a knife. But it goes to show um, it's the people that we need to worry about, not so much the weapon they have in their hand. And is it is it about eye-to-eye contact or is it just body language? Uh, I think there's a little bit of everything. You're talking about detecting a, a you know a bad a bad actor, a bad guy. Um, a projection and demeanor is is usually um, the first set of clues. And if you see something odd or strange, and obviously you should tell someone. But I think we've become so sensitive and worried about hurting someone's feelings or offending someone. We tend to not say anything, and uh, it's time for people to just kind of let go of the, uh, oh, I might hurt their feelings, and just go ahead and go say something because it could prevent uh, um, an entire crisis from happening. Being that Navy SEAL, how did you train your mind, body, and soul to expect the unexpected? Um, Well, you have to first... Um, embrace the element of surprise. So knowing that it's always there and it can always catch you on guard is really the first way to, you know, being ready for it and defending it. Second is, you know, being more of a tactical decision maker. So you're what-ifing things on a regular basis, not to the point where you're paranoid, just to the point where you're prepared and that you at least think about it. And um, I think that is key that everyone can start utilizing 
um, and of course, pull your head out of your cell phone. Yeah. I got to be honest with you, since the Charleston shooting, every Sunday morning, dude, I, I, I sit there and watch every single door. I look for movement. It's a good idea, considering doorways are in the in the tactical world considered fatal tunnels. You never want to be, you know, you want to know where your exits are, but always keep in mind those exits are also where it's easiest to, uh, you know, shoot people as they file in or out. So you want to get to the exits as quickly as possible. And then, and then, if there is shooting inside your book, it's duck and cover. Correct. It's all about the run, hide, fight philosophy. Now has been adopted and supported by you know the FBI. That's what they push and put out. But yeah, you've got to be able to run. You've got to be able to hide if you can't run any further. And then if you find yourself in a confined space, be ready to fight, not play possum. You know, these guys I hear about that survive these shootings because they pretend to be dead. Uh, personally, I think it's ridiculous because that means they're just laying there listening to other people being shot instead of just doing something about it. So get out there, find yourself in the middle of a crisis, increase distance. If you can't get behind things that stop bullets, you can't do that, you find yourself confined in a bathroom, then fight. You know, use improvised weapons around you and beat that person to death. Don't you see your book becoming a, a, a valuable tool for these schools of martial arts? I would hope so. I, I, all I want is to influence a little bit of creativity and aggression in uh, the everyday citizen and for them to be confident enough to know that, you know, just because a guy's got a gun does not mean he has the advantage. He sure as hell, it's scary. You might get stabbed in the leg, you might get shot in the shoulder, but that's better than, you know, ending up dead because you did nothing. Do you believe in the theory of running like a rabbit if, if there are shots being fired, run, you know, and go in any direction, zigzag it? I believe zigzagging is very effective because it forces the shooter to change elevation and windage at the same time, which makes his shots probably inaccurate. And I think people have to remember these bad guys most of the time tend to be inexperienced people with guns and they're nervous and it's their first time to shoot someone. So, you know, we give them a lot of credit because they have a gun, but the reality is, is you know, they, they don't know what they're doing. And if they're emotionally or mentally unstable, then that even adds to their inaccuracy and makes them very vulnerable. I know that everybody is talking about, we've got the Democratic Convention going on now, we've got the Olympics coming up, there's, there's several protests around the country, but man, it's, it's, these shootings are taking place in, in, um, in clubs as well. Is there a safe place? Uh, I've been saying it time and time again, what used to be wrong place at the wrong time is becoming any place at any time, so I think... We all need to just be a little more aware, once again, not driving paranoia, but just pay attention and know that soft targets are definitely a very, you know, are prime for opportunistic predators. So they're not going to go somewhere where there's, you know, where it's fortified security and, you know, cameras everywhere. They're going to go somewhere where there's a crowd of people that have no security, um, whether it's on the streets of Nice or in a nightclub in Orlando. Um, they're starting to hit these soft targets that have limited security. Unplugged and totally uncut with Colin Hay. Trying to take that midnight train. 
But it's gone and broken down again Now I'm stuck on empty avenue what is it about American music where we can't be storytellers like you? I think that the, there are great storytellers in American music. I think that that was one of the things about growing up in both Scotland and Australia, which we were, I was very, very um, impressed by, was the fact that in America, all the stories were about American places and told by American writers, whether it's whether it's Dylan or, or Johnny Mitchell or Randy Newman or any great songwriter you mentioned, they're all great storytellers. And I, th- I think there's, there is a great heritage of American, of American uh, stories in, in American music. Oh, cry, our tears are not enough To fire storms and hurricanes I'm 16 hours on an aeroplane 10,000 miles of ocean view Trying to get to you it seems like music has gotten into get to the hook, get to the hook, because you know how radio is. If it's not 25 seconds into the hook, then, you know, program directors just kind of go really weird. Does that affect you as a songwriter? No, I don't really pay attention. I mean, the thing for me is that I got, I had a lot of success with, first of all, our first song, Who Can It Be Now, was we learned a lot from the guy who produced our, our record, Peter McKeon, who was an American guy. And uh, Who Could It Be Now originally was six, six minutes long and the hook of the song never came in until halfway through the song it, when we played it live. But um, when he produced the record, he said, well, that's no good because radio programmers won't, they won't play that. They won't, they won't listen to it for more than... has to be something happening within the first 30 seconds. And yeah. so he said, so he moved the saxophone part to the front of the song and so it went... Dum. People go, oh, immediately they hear a hook. So we learned a lot from him. So with our first, um, our albums were very, he was very aware. We weren't really aware because we were very inexperienced, but he was very aware of trying to make the most out of the songs. Uh, to, to To make it a pop song, to make it a great song, but also to stand the best possible chance of getting on the radio. That was a, that was a, a, an important aspect of how he of how he produced the songs. Since that time, uh, we made three albums. Two of them were very successful, and I've made 12 albums since then, and none of them have been commercially successful. And I suppose in the back of my mind, I'm not so much thinking about radio, but I'm thinking about how to say more with less, trying to trying to make the most out of a song, which does entail, if there's a memorable uh, hook, you want people to hear it, so you play it 
uh, in an opportune place and you also uh, play on an instrument that, that's, that's interesting to listen to. I mean, a whole lot of choices like that. But I never really think about radio because, I mean, I haven't been played on the radio for um, of, of my new material for many, many years. And so, I mean, I would love to be played on the radio, but I have no control over that. And if you, as soon as you start, as soon as I start trying to think, oh, well, what are people playing on the radio or will they trying to tailor my music to that, I'll just go mad, I think, because I, because I, th- I think, I always think that the songs on my records that would sound great on the radio, but they don't get played so what am I going to do you, you, you can't lose any sleep over it maybe you got lost at the five ways took a wrong turn just like always or did you just take the long way home I hear the wind blow through the pine trees I watch the frozen Acoustic guitar has been a part of your life from the yeah, very yeah, beginning, I, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I love the acoustic guitar. Yeah, when I was 14, I started playing acoustic. I feel very, it's a, it's a natural game for me. Now, on your new album, are there acoustic pieces on it to where people can really connect with that? Uh, there's one, uh, one or two, but it's, it's mainly an electric record. But there's all, uh, there's all, there's, yeah, there's acoustics all over the record. Yeah, absolutely. Did you just take the long way? an energy about you that really brings people to you and you and it draws them into the storyteller type. Are you a storyteller or are you a songster in the way of you know exactly how we're going to react? No, I just I just try and write the best songs I've got. I mean, I, when I start to write songs, I just try and write the best songs I have. I don't think, oh, well, this song's a story. I'd be glad to give back all I've ever owned I could have seen into the future If only I had known Behind these walls of separation I have learned to live alone But I want you I co-wrote six of the songs on the last record with a friend of mine. He would come round and have a musical idea, and he'd go, "Listen to this, listen to this," and he'd play it. And then he'd go, "I got one line, I'm trying to get to you. That's all I got." And I go, "Okay," and play it again. Play, keep playing it, keep playing it. He would just keep playing it, and I just wrote out, wrote out the lyrics, and I, in 45 minutes we had a song. So you're not thinking, okay, you know, you're not thinking analytically or academically. You're just thinking, okay, what what is this? You know, and in a lot of ways you follow the song. You try in a lot of ways. You know, you get some idea. And sometimes a song will dictate to you what it's yeah. about. Sometimes it'll take you down a different road. And you have to, and sometimes you have to just get out of your own way and not be too pedantic or too, um, you know, too uh, laborious about it. It's you I have to find. My back is up against the ropes. Only one way I can go. And I Yeah, because your songwriting has always reminded me, as I have ink on my fingers because I write. So therefore, it's almost like, do, are you a writer in that way? Too? And that's the reason why your you, your songs, really, they're ageless. Uh, yeah, I write things down, but I also use a computer. I don't care. I, you know, I do whatever's handy. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not really that fast. What I do now is I tend to use it. I use my iPhone a lot, and I just um, I just record ideas on that. 
and, and I have a bunch of ideas, uh, you know, sometimes lyrical ideas, but a lot of musical ideas. And sometimes you just have a music idea with one or two lines, and then you get home and try and make sense of it. And the ones that are really, the ones that have something where there's something there, they usually stick and you usually work on those. But the important thing for me now is to actually record them because sometimes I'll come up with an idea and I think, that's that's really, I'll think, oh, that's good. I won't, That is so good that I won't forget that, but I always do. So I never used to when I was in my 20s. I used to remember stuff, you know. But now I don't. Now I just, sometimes I listen to something and I go, I have no memory of coming up with that, you know, but I know I did because there's nobody else in the room. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do in that situation? when that happens because I mean there, there are times people it's my voice I guess yeah, I did it then yeah, yeah, right. we'll eat drink and be merry yeah next year people wait and we'll see when next year people you and me Henry got hit by lightning twice in the head. He stood and walked away. We thought he that poor Henry with two bolts of lightning, sir. That's right. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Walks for miles and miles and no one knows why. The bank men they came and wrote things down on paper. We all went outside and just stood around. We were glad when they left. They brought nothing but heartache and the seed we had planted it stayed when you're recording at home does that give you the freedom then to to you can step in there or do you have to have like I call it the separation between church and state that I have this amount of time to go in the room or can you be sitting in the, in the backyard going I feel it I gotta go now I'm oh, not really I'm not really one of those people uh, but I, I like to discipline have more discipline now than I used to have but I tend to give yourself a certain amount of time, you know, to, to, to do that and not have the telephone and not have be checking emails and stuff like that. If, if you're writing songs. But a lot, of, a lot of the time I work by myself. So I go downstairs and I just go into the studio and um, you, have to get, you have to give yourself permission to fail. You have to go, okay, I'm going to be here for four hours and nothing might happen. But you have to stay there for the four hours and you have to play. Sometimes practicing is a good way to take you into a different a, a different kind of zone where you where you start to write more just by, by the fact that you're you're not thinking about writing a song. You're actually just, just doing something which is quite mechanical. Right. Like, like playing a scale or playing a... A chord that you're not used to, and it'll take you take you somewhere else, and then all of a sudden you you find yourself, um, you know, maybe maybe coming up with something that um, you wouldn't ordinarily come up with because that particular, um, you know, relationship between notes or something takes you into a different a different area. So, but it you know, however you do it, some people write with grooves, and I tried that for a while. You know, where because you have so much potential, you have. Machine machinery, you have drum machines, you have all kinds of technology that can help you uh, write songs. But I would end up with 40 or 50 ideas and nothing finished. So I try to just not turn the machines on. Now, before, if I'm writing something, I just try and finish it I before I record it. And then I get people to come up and go, here's a song, and you record a, 
something that already is a song as opposed to going well you'll like this once the lyrics are done let's record <laughs> this you know this will be great one day it'll be good not today but later on <laughs> yeah because that's what Picasso used to do Picasso would do a little bit at a time come back come back next week I'll, I'll give you something else it's like mm. no show me now really yeah Picasso was very protective of, of his artwork on canvas he was never done so, are you ever done with a song yeah I mean some yeah, yeah well the thing is that uh, I mean, a song exists in, in very bare. In, in, you know, you can write you can write a song, and, and there's nothing on it. Just play it on piano, sing it, and there's the song. It doesn't need anything else. And you could, but then you can orchestrate it, and you could have. Um, yeah, you know, you're talking you're talking more about the arrangement of a song. Some people keep going with songs because maybe they're not very good and they think, well, I'm not really sure I'll put this bit on it because that'll make it better. But I mean, you have to tell yourself the truth. You have to go, well, is this good? You know, and sometimes songs sound great on the radio. And I'm, I must admit, I'm no expert on this. You know, you'll, you'll be a hit song and it'll sound fantastic with, with the production of it. And there are great people, really great record producers around these days. And they, they have particular sound and they all of a sudden you think, well, that's not much of a song, but you hear it once it's all put together and it sounds fantastic, yeah. you know? Yeah. But um, I, tend to, I tend to have a simple approach, you know, which is just, I like to be able to play the song and sing it. You know, there's lots of different ways to do it. That's just how, what makes me feel comfortable because most of the time I'm going out and playing, touring by myself. So... You know, you can't start off a song when you're playing it live and going, I'm going to play this tune. It'll be all right, but really, uh, it's much better with other people on it. <laughs> <laughs> especially your, your new collection of songs. Is it the, the modern way where you invite other musicians to send their tracks to you, or do you get to do the one-on-oneness with the band and stuff when they're in the studio with you? No, I have my studio, so people come to me. Oh, good for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they like coming up to the studio. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah, because it's, it is about that, that connection. I mean, I have done that. I mean, I have sent some stuff to people, and they send me their stuff back as a, a guy who... Sometimes you do that with strings, or sometimes people go, "Oh, well, send me the track," and I'll, I'll you know, no, no, nothing wrong with that. But it's the bare bones of the song in terms of the rhythm track. You know, I have people come up and play drums and bass and guitars, and we, we record it in the studio. I 
think your real artistry is? Is it is it writing the lyrics? Is it playing the guitar? Or is it the man behind the control board? Do you, are you three different people? Or is it that you hear it up here and you just know how to get there? Well, having a studio is... Uh is at first uh, I mean I, I I do things mainly um, not by design but more by necessity by circumstance you know when I, I got dropped by MCA Records as I was saying before but I wanted to keep making records but I didn't want to go and try and get a record deal and go into some record company with a 24 year old A&R guy and go please give me a record deal because they wouldn't have given me one you know, and I, and I never had a record deal for 13 years. So I just did it myself. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to learn how to do this. So I just learned how to be an engineer over a, over a period of years. So it's just, it's just necessity. And it's not, it's not that I particularly like producing my records, but I look, whenever I start a record, I look around the room and there's nobody else there. So I think, well, I better do it because nobody else here. I would like to work with a record producer, but I don't really have budgets to pay people thousands of dollars to come and produce my, my songs, you know. But I also do have a fairly good idea of how I want things to sound. So, and I also have very good friends. I can invite a number of people you know, a small number of people, but a number of people who will come up to the studio and, and give me very honest opinions about what's going on, you know. When did like you... I, you know, they'll say, what are all these guitars on there for, you know? <laughs> Get rid of them, you know. I go, oh, I like them. And I go, no, you only need one. Get rid of these. And so I end up ditching guitars because my, my friend told me to, you know. But he knows what he's doing, so you have to sometimes trust people. But the record's still spinning. Going round and round and round You'll always mean so much to me Took us further than the eye can see I know you'll always take me by the I mean, the person that I always think of in terms of over over recording was Peter Gabriel, but he but he would end up with such superlative product that you go, well, that's a great way to do it. You know, he would record, and he would, you know, go down different roads, go try this road, try down that, and actually, you know, Steely Dan would do that a lot too. Steely Dan were great with they would they would you know re-record tracks. They would use this drummer, this different bass player, and. And um, you know they were they were uh, uh, legendary for that kind of um, um, perfection, uh, seeking you know seeking perfection through using different musicians and so there's nothing wrong with that. If you end up, it's 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 what, it's what you want to get at the end. That's important, you know. Going through the motions, walking round the car, traveled many miles, though not so very far. When I check the side view mirror, I think of you, my dear. You're always very close, closer than you appear. And you'd say, are we there yet? As we drive into the sun, we are almost there, my love, my innocent one. All of your songs sound like they have a life. The, the time flew so fast in the other room, I felt like that we got to step inside your imagination. Oh, dear, dear. <laughs> could, could you be where we were looking up at you on that stage sometime and watch you, if you could, if you could separate like that? 
I mean, no, I have no interest in doing that. Really? No, no, no. You're a very fascinating man, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, it's fine just doing it. I have no, I have no, I have no desire to watch myself do it. It's here, there, and everywhere. Always fast and never slow. And you'd say, are we there yet? As we drive into the sun, we are almost there, my love. My innocent one A picture-perfect moment A moment we could share Laughter from the backseat We're always almost there I want to thank you for coming to iHeartRadio. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank My you pleasure. so much. All thank right. you.
Unplug and go totally uncut with the best of the best on today's wildly outrageous and socially networked comedy circuit. He's known as Eric Griffin, but for we fans this side of Comedy Central, the TV show workaholics, dude... It's Montez. It's great being a workaholic. Television producers and actual movie producers are starting to rely on the real writers and the real stars, which is you. How does that make you feel that this turn of events is starting to happen? Well, you know, I think it's great. You know, it's completely awesome. And, you know, the comedians are finally getting a chance to show what they can do other than on stage. But we have to do our part, too. You know, we have to go to acting class and we have to be prepared and, you know, the fact that Hollywood is now understanding that comedians are the ones that can do these things, it's great, you know. Because I think after what happened at the Oscars with James Franco and Anne Hathaway, like how horrible they were as a host, I think that they said, oh, you know what, actually we should get comedians for things like this. And I think it's translating over to other areas of entertainment. Speaking of the Oscars, it seems like a lot of people are turning it down for next year. If the opportunity came to you, would you say, all right. Somebody would be making a crazy decision and I would jump all over it. <laughs> <laughs> Would you look at, you know, like Comedy Central being on cable TV and everything, is that the YouTube of television, do you think? There, it's not that they break the rules. It's just that when, they, when there's comedy involved, people think that it's going to be something crass or something inappropriate. But if you look at cable, I mean, FX and um, Stars and a bunch of other little smaller cable channels, they do some pretty risque stuff uh, right on TV. Do you ever get to, to see the research of who's DVR? And you? you know what? I have no idea. You would think they would know that because I remember when Janet Jackson's boob popped out, they had a stat, the most DVR'd moment. So if they can if they can have a stat like that, then that means they can keep track. Now, in radio, we're always looking for hits and stuff on websites and stuff. As a comedian, do you find yourself having to write for the next viral video or the viral joke or anything like that? Are you forcing yourself to do that? Well, Twitter Twitter is um, making that, you know, what you have to do. You know, if you like to tweet, you like to tweet out stuff, you know, if something current event happens and you want to get out there, Twitter is the best way to get it out there fast. You know, now there's Instagram with pictures and Vine with video. So that, that market is always there. And if you're a person that likes to interact on social media, then you, you, know, you have to be on the forefront of that. You have to keep, keep, up with, uh, keep up with the Joneses, as they say. When they said comedy was dying in the clubs, what do you tell somebody on, on how to become a survivor in your industry? Well, it is tough. I will say that. And the comedy clubs themselves are to blame. They're putting us out of business because they only want to book stars. But how do you become a star? You have to build a fan base. How do you build a fan base? It's supposed to be in the club. So that is becoming harder to for, for younger comics to come up and actually get work. So I would tell people that, you know, you have to be on the forefront of uh, technology, whatever's going on out there, you know. There are people that have become famous on YouTube and, and, and Twitter, and, and now there's going to be more videos like that. So, you know, you have to get out there, continue to perform, continue to uh, get your message out, and then hopefully it will translate and, and more people will want to see you live. That's the only thing I can say for now. And, and still the conventional way still works too, though. Do you find yourself uh, wanting to go toward radio or to do anything for Saturday Night Live or anything like that? I mean, because, dude, you're on the edge. When I was a kid, I used to play my mom's Shirley Bassey records, and I would tape them, and in between the songs, I would talk like I was a radio disc jockey. 
So I always wanted to do radio, and, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll see where the future takes me. So what what would be your fake radio disc jockey voice? I always be like, this is Kay White. (laughs) (laughs) W-H-I-T. And then I would be like, you know, I just used to do that all the time. I'd just be like, this is your son coming at you live from the living room. (laughs) At that time, you know, like KRP in Cincinnati was on the air, you know, was on TV. And that was like a thing, you know, that was like, that was a thing. And every radio station would have some kind of call letter. Do other comedians ever, do you guys critique each other? Do you have air check sessions? And they do they make you sound like, because we call them Randy Radios when you start grinding your voice. Well, I mean, yeah, big comics talk, you know, we're very brutal with each other too, especially our friends. The closer we are, the more honest we are with each other. Do you still have those moments where a joke hits you and you make yourself laugh pretty hard? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I still enjoy comedy. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I do. I still enjoy watching comedy, and I still enjoy, you know, jokes that I make. That I, I, I mean, I have jokes that I really love, even if other people don't love them. It's something that I love, so I laugh myself. But, but how do you, how do you practice it and put it up on stage? I mean, do you write it down? How do you personally make sure that it becomes a part of your of your stand? For me personally, I just do it. I have an idea. I, look, I'm on stage for almost an hour. I could take a couple of minutes to work on something. What is comedy to you? That's how we deal with tragedies. You know, we make jokes. You know, that's just how we deal with it. We're not necessarily normal people. So, you know, normal people in society, you know, they feel like, oh, I can't talk about this yet. But that's not how we feel. But laughter is a basic common response to anything. People laugh at funerals. People laugh at weddings. People laugh at all because that is... Just a common response. People say the damnedest things. That's what I'm saying. You know, there's comedy all around. It's just what we're we're just like the town crier relaying the message of what we saw. That's all comedians are, really. So you don't consider yourself a court jester. I love it. That's classy. Eric Griffin from Comedy Central's Workaholics in Charlotte this week at the Comedy Zone. Grab some tickets. Enjoy the entire night out with Eric Griffin. CLTComedyZone.com. CLTComedyZone.com.